in my opinion, I think it maximizes the attacks of the collective. Because when we tuck in our Megan David and we hide who we are, we're basically accepting and normalizing a reality that is for Jews to be attacked. It's normal. It's something that we accept. And I think that that's a mentality that Jews have to rid themselves of, of being too afraid to actually stand up. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Within Zionism here with Ozzy Fine and Moshe Schwartzberg. Today, we have a special guest, Rudy Rockman. Thank you for having me. This is an episode we've been wanting to have for a long time and never got around to it, so we are both very excited to have you. Yeah, we've been looking forward to this. It's crazy that we were in the same country, and now that I'm in France, now we're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's start off by hearing a little bit from you, who you are, where you're from, what your background is. Sure. So, like you said, my name is Rudy Rockman. I think where every Jew is originally from is from Israel. But the longer story to that is that I was born in Paris, France in 1993. My mother's side of the family came from Morocco and Algeria. My father's side of the family came mostly from Poland. Uh, in 1948, there was a massacre of the Jewish community in Ujda in Morocco, which led to my family fleeing to France. And on my father's side, they survived the Holocaust by fleeing from Poland to France and hidden addicts throughout the war to survive. So both my parents were first generation born in France. I left when I was three. Uh, we moved to Israel, lived there for two years in Hanana, and then we moved to Miami. Uh, the goal was to go to America for a few years to do some business and then to come back. Five years became seven years, became 10 years, became 15 years. And I grew up most of my life in the US uh, between Miami, Palo Alto, uh, Los Angeles. My family even spent a year in Singapore. And so I grew up basically in the diaspora, but at a very early age when I was growing up in Miami uh, at the age of five, I sort of came across a sort of identity crisis, I would say, um, specifically in Miami, which is very different than other communities in America. No one really identifies as American. Uh, you're either Argentinian, Venezuelan, Haitian, Cuban, Colombian, Russian. Everyone really identifies as somewhere else, even if they were born in Miami. And right away, going to a Jewish day school, I was labeled the French kid. And when I'd visit family in France, I was the American cousin. And my dad is Ashkenaz and my mom is Sephardic, but I was completely raised with my mother's traditions because my father didn't pass down any traditions really because nothing was passed down to him because of what happened during the Holocaust. There was a cut in the transmission. So I was raised completely Sephardic. But yet in school, I was told, oh, because your father is Ashkenaz, it means you're Ashkenazi. And so constantly, wherever I am, I'm being told I'm supposed to be someone else. I'm supposed to be from somewhere else. And when I'm in those places, I'm not from those places. So I sort of started to reject the answers that were being imposed onto me and wanted to find out what was my answer. What did I connect to? What did I see myself as? And when I was seven, I had uh, my first anti-Semitic experience. I took a trip to London with my mom and my younger brother. And we got onto the red tour bus of London. And the bus driver noticed that uh, my mom was wearing a shirt in Hebrew and asked her, excuse me, is that written in Jewish? The guy was a neo-Nazi. And she said, no, it's written in Hebrew, but it's the language of the Jewish people. That's what you're asking. And he said, oh, so you guys are Jews. And she's like, yeah, we're Jews. What's the problem? He's like, I don't want any Jews on my bus. You have to get off. Um, uh, immediately said, I don't know who you think you are, but it's not going to happen. We're definitely not going to get off this bus. And he got up, grabbed my mom and threw her off. And that moment really changed my life on many levels. The first is it made me promise to myself that the next time I deal with some act of anti-Semitism in that sense, or in any sense, to, to be honest, I'd be prepared to deal with it, prepared 
uh, intellectually, emotionally, physically, and even ideologically understanding why these things were happening. And the second thing that it did for me, which I cherish to this day, is it taught me who I was. Because I realized it didn't matter where I was born, grew up, lived in, traveled to, resided in, what passport I had, what languages I spoke, where my parents were born, where my grandparents were born. These were just chapters in my experience and in my family's experiences. But where I'm from is really where I belong and where my ancestors are from and where my descendants uh, are going to be always from, no matter where they live, no matter where they're displaced. And I realized that that's Israel. And so I started asking myself deeper questions. You know, if if fundamentally I'm a Jew, because this is who I am no matter what, what does that even mean? Because I'm from the tribe of Levi, from both sides of my family. I'm not from the tribe of Judah. So why am I called a Jew if in the Torah, in our history, in our culture, it always says the nation of Israel or the children of Israel or the Hebrews and never the Jews. And I realized that the reason we're all called Jews today collectively is because the name of our last civilization that existed was called Judea. And since we came from Yehuda, uh, we all became known as Yehudim, Jews from Judea. And we created a sort of portable suitcase to preserve our identity, way of life, culture, connection to a higher power, connection to our land, uh, mission statement, everything else. And we packed everything up into the suitcase that we call Judaism. And we passed it down the Dovadol generation to generation with the aspiration of Shana Babil Shanaim, one day coming back to Jerusalem and reviving the civilization that we had packed up with the aspiration of rebuilding that. So when I realized that the reason I was called a Jew is because the name of my civilization then was called Judea, logically, if the name of my civilization today is called Israel, and that's actually the proper name of the entire nation, we say Am Yisrael Chai, and the proper name of the land, we say Eretz Israel, then that makes me Israeli. And what I meant and what I still mean by being an Israeli today is not necessarily that you grew up with an Israeli passport, not necessarily that you were born there, not necessarily that you grew up eating Bamba Bisli and listening to Shlomo Atsi and Eyal Golan and Omer Adam and all these things that you can say is pop culturally Israeli today. It's really the descendant of a 4,000 year old people and the living continuation of that people called Am Yisrael. Uh, so from that moment on, whenever someone asks me, where are you from? I would answer by where I'm really from, which is Israel. And I think it's the responsibility of every Jew to answer in that way, because if we ourselves don't say we're from Israel, then how can we expect the rest of the world to understand that Israel is the home of the Jews if we ourselves don't say that? Uh, after high school, I joined the army in Israel. I served as a paratrooper, enlisted at the age of 17. When I finished the army, I started my journey on college campuses. I first started at UCLA and Santa Monica College. And that's when I first experienced the whole anti-Israel movement, which we can get in deeper, uh, you know, in the next questions. And then I eventually transferred to Colombia because for me, I really wanted to take this fight on head on. And that Colombia was listed one of the most anti-Semitic schools. In fact, it was listed number one at the time that I was transferring. And that's why I chose to go there. And I started a movement there, which started as a grassroots student movement, but eventually became something much more viral, much larger. Uh, more of an ideological movement doesn't matter of what acronym stands in front of it. Um, I would say, I'm, and I'm, I would say I'm not even the only one. I'd say there are several individuals that are taking the responsibility in this generation to empower uh, those around us, the next generation, to narrate the story of Israel, to create a space that allows us to write the next chapter of Jewish history. And I sort of evolved into the position that I am today. And today I focus on many things, but I'm sure that's probably a future question as to what I did today. So first, I want to start off with I hope that one day with this podcast, we're able to get past that and make a lot more of a change in the world. But we'll start with the podcast. So you said that you went through a few different anti-Semitic 
things that you've seen, like the one in, in uh, England, does that affect any way of how you leave Israel? So when you like leave Israel, are you in any way scared or worried that something like that will happen again? I'm definitely not afraid at all of anti-Semitism. I constantly put myself uh, in the middle of places that people would consider dangerous. I was, I'm in France right now. Uh, the other day, I went to several different campuses that everyone told me, oh, you have to go there with security. Uh, it's super dangerous. There have the, the expression and the analogy they gave is they have knives in their mouths ready to come and fight you. And although they were very aggressive and they were shouting with megaphones, they had never seen Jews being strong and face them. And I think when you take on, um, you know, what I think a Jew really is for me, when I think of a Jew, I don't think of someone, uh, you know, sitting down and, and, and praying and afraid of, of someone going to attack them and, and you know, sort of cuddling themselves and, and in their little shtetls. For me, I think of like a, a Maccabee, like a, a strong uh, you know, person that's both strong spiritually, psychologically, intellectually, mentally, and physically, and isn't afraid of being who they are. Um, there's something that I always experienced when I would come to France is my family telling me to put in my Magan David whenever I'd go in the streets. Now, it is much more dangerous for Jews in Europe than it is in America, but I always refused. And I didn't know how to explain it when I was younger. But now that I look back at it, I understand that putting in my Magan David would, uh, if you look at it statistically, minimize the risk of an anti-Semitic attack because I wouldn't necessarily be identified as a Jew if they don't hear my name, Rockman, if they don't hear me speak Hebrew, if they don't see some sort of symbol that shows that I'm a Jew or they don't recognize me for who I am. However, in my opinion, I think it maximizes the attacks of the collective because when we tuck in our Megan David and we hide who we are, we're basically accepting and normalizing a reality that it is for Jews to be attacked. It's normal. It's something that we accept. And I think that that's a mentality that Jews have to rid themselves of, of being too afraid to actually stand up. And yes, when you're in your classroom, if you respond to an anti-Semitic, anti-Israel professor, there is a chance that your grade might be affected. But if you don't do that, the 500 uh, students in the, in the auditorium or the 100 students in the small lecture class, whatever size classroom it is, all those individuals that are part of the next generation's political and ideological class are getting taught of all these bad things about Israel and the Jewish people. And when they go into positions of power, the world as we know it will completely change and become worse. And that's much more dangerous than risking your bad grade, which by the way, if you got a bad grade for standing up for Israel, I think it's like a badge of honor. And secondly, you can use that to get the professor fired because things don't just happen that way that you get a bad grade and get away with it. You can actually speak up and prove that you don't deserve that grade. And then that professor would think twice before doing it to the next person. So you for sure do put yourself, at least in my eyes, in a place where it's a little more dangerous. A hundred percent. You see his videos, do. you see what he does. Yeah, like, like... you, the other, the other day you, I think you uploaded a picture of, I guess, you in France with an Israeli flag, a really big one. So I'm assuming you know some sort of martial arts, Krav Maga, something like that? Yeah, I've, I did the army in Israel. I was a combat soldier, so I know Krav Maga. Also, when I was younger, I did uh, Taekwondo, and I'm a black belt in Taekwondo. But the point is not necessarily about physically fighting because I could be surrounded by 50 people and doesn't matter how much you're trained in the martial arts or in defending yourself. You know, if you're surrounded, you're surrounded. Um, I think that we are so afraid to just do basic things. I'm not telling anybody to go to an alleyway where, you know, there's a group of neo-Nazis meeting and put a Israel flag in their face. I'm not saying to provoke anything, but we're, we're afraid of just being who we are today.
And when I was on one of the university campuses, we saw a Jew walking in to the to the campus through the gate and actually putting his kippah in his pocket. And so that to me is way more dangerous than actually going in with your kippah and risking potentially getting someone to say something about it. Because on the long term, if we accept this reality and we allow it to grow, we know exactly where it leads to. So what gives you the courage to like go out and do the things that you do, like hold up a big Israeli flag in a place that you know there's a lot of anti-Semitic people? Well, I think it's several things. I think that first experience with anti-Semitism that I had when I was younger definitely plays a huge role because I promised myself after that moment that I would never be afraid again, that I would never. It's not even that I was afraid. I just didn't know how to react. I didn't know what to do, what to respond. You know, I'm someone that doesn't like conflict. I actually like bringing people together. I actually, you know, prefer peaceful conversations. Um, so whenever someone's fighting, I try to kind of get in the middle to resolve the situation. So when I was there, for me, at a, a seven-year-old that's super innocent and doesn't understand the way the world works yet, I was like, why is this happening? Like, what did we do to you? And I promised myself that the next, like, that would always be my natural go-to belief to try to bring people together. But in the case that someone were to step the line, cross the line and try to attack us, either physically, ideologically, psychologically, whatever, in whatever way, I'd have to be prepared to deal with it and I'd have to be able to defend my own. So I was going to say, like, going further back, you were very young. It was something that was like, like you didn't understand, like someone at that age doesn't understand what's going on, like you said. So how did that, something that you didn't even understand as much as you would now, how did that have such a big impact on your life? I'm assuming more growing up and I'm assuming your your nature as you, who you are, like that was more of an effect also. I think that there's several things that come into play. First of all, I had uh, amazing experiences as a child, um, you know, very educated background with the family members that I was surrounded with and the conversations that I was uh, accustomed to hearing and the uh, uh, learning opportunities and educational opportunities and going to uh, summer camps and uh, doing extracurricular activities. So I'm, I'm very happy for the life that my family was able to create for me, even though when I was younger, my family was just starting off and didn't have much and, you know, their success came later on. They always invested in our education, um, whether it's going to school or just, you know, education at home, teaching us good values. And, you know, don't be afraid of who you are. Don't let someone, you know, walk over you. Always try to help other people. So those things definitely played a role in being who I am. Um, I wouldn't say that right when that moment happened, I came to the conclusions that I have today. There definitely was an evolution post uh, them happening. But I, there was a level of guilt inside of me that I'm the eldest of four boys um, and I didn't know how to defend my mom. Of course, I was seven years old and you wouldn't necessarily expect someone that's seven years old to know what to do in that situation. But for me at that age, I was like, I should have been prepared. I should have done something. I should have known what to do. So next time I will. And that played a huge role into it. I think even the name of, of someone plays a huge role. So I have two names. I have Rudy and I have Israel. Israel is my Hebrew name. A lot of people don't understand that when it's Rudy underscore Israel on Instagram, that's actually my Hebrew name, not just because I'm Israeli. Yeah. <laughs> so Israel, first of all, is the name that Yaakov is given. Um, it's his second name, but it's his name also that means Yashal La'el or wrestling with God. And so the wrestling with God is not a necessarily a, a negative wrestle. It's more of a, 
of uh, trying to understand things on a deeper level to really adopt it and make it sh make sure that it makes sense for the individual because each individual understands things differently has their own evolution process so i think that there's a large part the experiences that i had i've always wrestled with them to try to understand them on a deeper level and then my name rudy actually comes from uh, a story that happened during the holocaust where there was a family in germany that was very assimilated and one of the children of this family his name was rudy and as anti-semitism started to rise he began saying you know you know we have to we have to fight back we can't just you know put our heads down we have to be able to to do something about it and eventually things happen people get deported and he he leaves to become a, a partisan fighter and fights the nazis and survives the war comes back and realizes his whole family was killed and eventually while he's in uh, Germany looking for his family and finds out that they're all killed. He stumbles upon a group of 50 uh, orphans and then takes those orphans back to Eretz Israel. And what's crazy to me is I only really knew the, the like I knew he was a Holocaust survivor and a fighter, but I only really knew the details of the story much after I had already started on this path. And when I look at it, it has a lot to do with who I've become because I refuse to uh, not stand up against anti-Semitism. Um, you know, I see the situation getting worse and I want to help Jews come back to Israel, if not physically, then at the very least mentally. So I think the name of a person definitely plays a big role, the education of a person, the experience of the person, the character of a person, and all of that plus more, I'm sure that I will, you know, realize with time as we all get older, we get wiser. Those are the things that played into me becoming the person that I am today and putting myself in those situations. So a few months back, you had a webinar uh, and we asked you a question on, I don't remember exactly how it was worded, but it was like, how can we do a better job of advocating for Israel? So your answer, in short, was uh, you need to know your enemies or the anti-Semitic people your enemy better, better than, than you know they yourself. know themselves. Yeah. So how, like, we might want to do a whole bunch of episodes on that, just like teach our listeners how to do it. But how would you, how have you done this? Because I'm sure you've been able to learn about them a lot more than you know about themselves how have you done this either just what resources have you used or just generally what have you done sure so i mean in, in response to to you i think first of all the way to change the world and to make the world a better place you can do that on the micro level and also on the macro level meaning you can do it amongst your friends your family your colleagues and you could also do it internationally or locally you can one doesn't prevent the other you can raise a strong Jewish family and you can also advocate and be an activist and do things to change the world in a better way. And you can also do it in many other you know, ways. You can do it in medicine, you can do it in art, you can do it in literature, you can do it in politics, you can do it in education. There are different fields that one can go into in order to help the world become a better place, which is the collective mission statement, but also the individual mission statement of every Jew and the Jewish nation. I think that each person has to find their skills because we're clearly born with some talents. Each one has their own talents. Um, we also have to work on improving other potential talents that we can tap into and develop and acquire. For example, public speaking is not something that I was born with. It's something that I've had to learn and develop and uh, be able to use it for what I wanted to do. And I would think that the basically the three model objective of any activist should be to empower, educate, and expose. And what I mean by that is empowerment, meaning first empowering yourself, giving yourself the intellectual 
uh, tools to be able to stand up against anti-Semitism, whether that be, you know, knowing the history, knowing the facts, knowing the narratives against Israel, knowing how to do public speaking, knowing how to debate, knowing how to talk about Israel and the Jewish people to the left and the right. So empowering yourselves and then empowering others around you to be able to do that, because unfortunately our previous generation didn't really teach us in the Jewish institutions that we grew up uh, to do that in practice. We kind of learned it in theory. Um, the next, I would say, is to educate. So we need to be the ones that tell the story of Israel. You wouldn't want to hear about black rights from KKK members. You wouldn't want to hear about women's rights from people who are anti-women. So why is the world hearing the story of Israel and the Jewish people from people who are anti-Semitic and anti-Israel? So we need to be the ones that educate the story of Israel to the world, of course, in a language and in a way that they can understand. So we need to understand our audience. And the younger generation has, at the same time, a more shallow conversation, but a deeper conversation. And in the sense of it's more shallow, it's like not factually based, but it's also deeper because it's based on like, I don't care if you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing right now. I care if you're the right person in general and in, in the first place. So Israel can be creating a bunch of nice technologies and doing great medical advances and doing such great things. But if you don't actually explain that we are the indigenous people and that Zionism was a decolonization movement that freed our land from the British. And unfortunately there were wars that happened after that that caused us to stay in conflict till this day. If you can't explain the origins and the just story of our existence, then it kind of falls apart. So understanding your audience and being able to narrate. And the third is to expose. There will always be movements that seek to disempower or attack any sort of group. There'll always be racism, unfortunately, there'll always be sexism, there'll always be anti-Semitism, but it's the responsibility of that group to create coalitions with allies of other groups and to educate and shift the culture for the culture to one, recognize that form of xenophobia as something wrong and to fight with them in being against it and rejecting it. So that today, for example, if we go back 70 years ago, you would go to a space like Columbia University and it was normal for people to have openly racist opinions. Today, if you go to an intellectual space like Columbia University and you say something racist, justfully so, you're completely shunned by the community. In fact, there would probably be a protest against you and the professors would condemn you and the university would condemn you. And that's what we should do to bad ideas, right? There's freedom of speech, but there's freedom of reaction to, to speech. And we should be able to have that freedom of reaction, but we should also make sure that the society that we live in understands what is good and what is bad. Racism is bad. Sexism is bad. Anti-Semitism is also bad. But today, if someone says something racist, all students are condemning it. But if someone says something anti-Semitic, no one is saying anything about it. No one even recognizes it. And the Jewish students, maybe they recognize it, but they weren't given the tools to fight against it. And so uh, if we allow this space of not being against it and not teaching the climate of the generation to understand and, and visualize and, and, and comprehend that this is something bad, then it actually allows it to grow. And it continues to grow until it becomes from ideas to actions. And we know the evolution of anti-Semitism throughout time, where it can get to. So that is like the, the third element I would say is it's our responsibility to expose bad ideas and to make sure that the society recognize it. And not only from the top down of passing legislature um, with the older generation, but also especially with the younger generation that will one day become in positions of power. In terms of what I do very quickly, um, my goal, I have several. Uh, 
first of all, is to establish a strong and healthy Jewish family uh, to become successful in a way that I can open all doors for the things that I want to do. And I see myself as an individual within this generation, like many individuals in previous generations, that taken upon themselves to help write the next chapter of Jewish history. And I do that in a way of trying to empower the next generation to unite these sort of ideological tribes that the nation of Israel has become today, from the right to the left, religious, secular, and so on. Um, even Mizrahi, Ethiopia, Ashkenazi, and Sephardi. Um, I try to also unite Israelis and Palestinians together so that we can find a way to live in a civilization that expresses to us a Jewish civilization and expresses to them the needs for a Palestinian civilization. Um, I think we never even try to have that conversation or to build something that works. And because of that, we've been convinced that each other's aspirations and liberations are actually uh, mutually exclusive when I think they're not. I think they actually unlock each other. Um, I try to tell Israel's story in a way that people can understand. And there are many other things that I that I work on and trying to build incentive programs for Jews to make Aliyah uh, and so on. Wow, that was that's really amazing. We should probably work a little more together than what we have until now. Um, yeah. But even though we haven't really had time to prepare for this because uh, we were just planning to have a meeting, but still this is a lot more fun when it's not fully prepared. There is one question that we always ask every one of our guests, so it's, how would you define Zionism? We've got a lot of fun answers. How would you define it? So the standard definition that I think most Zionists throughout time and also today define it as, as it's the self-determination movement of the Jewish people on their ancestral land. Um, but I would add another element to it that Zionism has nothing to do with the conflict, has nothing to do with Palestinians, has nothing to do with Arabs. It was one liberation movement out of several liberation movements that sought to bring the Jewish people back to the land of Israel and express sovereignty there. The reason for why we know Zionism and not the other ones is because one, not everyone's a scholar, and two, it's the only one that succeeded, so it's the one that we talk about. However, I would say that Zionism also is over. And the reason I say that is because Zion itself, Zion in Hebrew, is Jerusalem. And the goal of freeing Jerusalem, reviving our civilization, reviving our language, which was Zionism, was completed. I think it was completed in 1967. And I think now we're living in a time where we haven't yet, as a generation, discussed what is the next chapter of Jewish history. Because there are many great chapters but they ended and then we moved forward, right? We got the Torah, we came to Israel, we had went through hardships, we got out of that. We went to diaspora, we got out of that. Now we came back home, we revived our civilization. Now it's the next chapter of Jewish history. And I don't think any individual has necessarily the answer, but I think we can all be a part of the answer of having that conversation as a generation and figuring out where do we go? Because for me, I see Israel as a sort of vehicle. It's our soulmate, it's our home, but it's also a vehicle. And the point of a vehicle is to use it to get somewhere. And we're all back in the car, we're all back in the vehicle. You have the passenger seat, the uh, driver, and three people in the back, and maybe even more people in, in the car. And everyone wants to go in a different direction. And because of that, we're sort of staying in the same place, and we're not driving. And the point of the car is not just to sit in the car, but to use the car to go somewhere. And I think we need to have a conversation rather than telling each other, no, we should go there. I don't care what you say. No, we should go there sort of find a way to go in a direction that actually works for all of us. And we're not even thinking that way. We're not even having conversations to get to those conclusions. We're sort of allowing uh, certain ideas to be polarized and to drive us to reject the other rather than figure out a way to work together. 
And I think historically, that's one of the biggest problems of Am Yisrael, of being tribes divided and sinat chinam and fighting each other rather than working together. And you see that being expressed in our history and you see that being expressed even in many Jewish organizations today that have this internal infighting and differences and I'm better and you're better and my way's better. Um, and in reality, we need to find a holistic direction that actually unites Am Yisrael forward. So I do have a question based off what you said. You said that we completed the mission of Zion. Um, so yeah, we have Jerusalem, but we had a guest on recently, uh, Yehuda Glick, and he said that Zion is Zion, which is specifically the Temple Mount, which we have, but it's a difficult situation. So do you really think that we completed the mission of Zion if we don't really have that? So it's a good question. Um, it depends what we define as the mission of Zionism. First of all, I think everyone defines Zion as Yerushalayim uh, and not specifically only Harabait and the temple. Um, it's definitely a part. But it comes together with like the whole thing. It's a part of it. Sure. It's, is Jerusalem's not whole without Temple Mount. And, and, and Jerusalem and Israel's not whole without Hebron and Bethlehem and Shiloh and Shechem and other places as well. And and Israel isn't whole without making peace with our cousins. And the world isn't whole without making peace with our region. And the you know universe isn't whole without the whole world coming together. And that's what the concept of Mashiach is, us fixing that body. I think there are many elements that are still broken within Israel today, the political system, the corruption that exists, the economic situation, the monopolies, the, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that have to change within Israeli culture. But what I think is that we achieved is the material liberation of our land and the expression of our sovereignty. But it's not enough. You know, you, you need a body, but you need a soul. And if you have a soul without a body, it's just a wandering soul. And if you have a, a body without a soul, it's just a body with, with, you know, with nothing, like an empty vessel. And so we have both, but we haven't connected them yet. And I think that's... So I think I would take what you, what you said about having completed the mission of Zion. And like, I, I would correct it and say, we're in the right direction. We got the base. Like you said, like we got in the car. Now we just have to go in the direction and like... Like, we have to complete Jerusalem by getting Temple Mount. We have to complete Israel by getting Hebron and all the places that you mentioned and and farther with the world and everything like that. But I wouldn't, I, I mean, personally, I wouldn't say that we completed the mission of Zion yet. Well, I, I think we didn't complete the mission of Am Yisrael yet. I think the if you we look at academically what Zionism was set built and set to do, um, according to those that founded the term and that were part of the movement, not only Herzl, but Pinskel and Jabotsky and a lot of other individuals, the goal was to establish Israel. And then some people would say, well, okay, well, we established Israel, but we didn't get Jerusalem yet because Jerusalem is Zion. Okay, we have Jerusalem now. It's our capital. Yes, there's still things that need to change uh, and that we need to achieve. But in my opinion, what, whether it's like Zionism 2.0 or you call it something else, like to me, the, the terms doesn't matter. The conversation has to shift towards we accomplished the first step or the first phase. Now we need to have a conversation of what's the second phase or the continuation of that phase and not stay trapped in the mindset of we're still in that first phase. And we also have to correct certain things that were not thought about and done. For example, there was no conversation or very little or not really a, a, a conversation that had much drive within the movement of what kind of civilization do we build with our neighbors? And what do we do with the Druzim and Bedouin and Chokesim and Palestinians and all these individuals that live here? That doesn't mean that Zionism believed to exclude them. No. In fact, in many of Herzl's literature, he talks about living with um, Arabs that were living there. 
However, there was no real answer as to what do we build that works for both peoples, because that's not what we were thinking of then. We were thinking of how do we get out of these horrible situations that we're in? How do we finally revive our civilization? How do we fight the British and get them out? Those were the things that were on our minds. Those are no longer problems, but there is a problem that we might have not seen coming that is now here and that we have to fix and find a way to move forward. And I think that that's a huge part of the next chapter of our Jewish history, because we talk a lot about tikkun olam and ola goim, fixing the world and being a light upon other nations that need to be empowered. Well, how about we become tikkun labayt shalano and ola bnedudim shalano? Meaning, how about instead of talking about fixing the world and empowering all other nations, how about we empower our own cousins in our own homeland? So based off that, and I'm going to add on, um, what you were saying about like, how, like we're not done yet and there's a phase two and whatever, whatever term anyone wants to use you with what you do. And I don't want an answer now. This is uh, we're low on time and this will sort of be a teaser for the next episode that we have with you. Um, I want to know you with what you do as an activist, as one person, you change a lot of people, which is amazing. But I want to know: Would you would you ever think about going farther? And have you or have you thought of going farther, and getting more of a team and a campaign and whatever you want to call it? Like, but not not working alone as one person, but like starting more of a foundation. So just a quick answer: um, I'm not planning to go into pol- to politics any 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 time in the near future. Um, I think the political system. Not in a political way. I, I, I oh, didn't mean okay. in a well, political well, way. Well, definitely, I already have and, a team uh, that I work with and I do things with, and of course, I want to expand and grow and do and do more uh, in order to help the people. So to to answer that, then for sure, and we can go more into de- detail of what the vision is moving forward in the next show. Okay. Cool. Okay. So we once had a, a guest recently. I think it was Dan Raviv that he said that like the the media has a lot more control over what people think than than like other news outlets or other outlets than <clears throat> sorry then if you had one message that you could give our listeners and anyone else who comes across this uh what would that be just one either line or two lines you, know, you talk about the media if we look at the situation in israel i think the media and the politicians are dividing us on things that are important. You look at the right, they care about identity and security. The left cares about human rights and justice. Uh, the religious cares about the connection with Hashem and uh, preserving our, our way of life. And the secular want to you know, evolve and have technology and learn maths and sciences. I think all these things don't contradict one another. I think they're all puzzle pieces to one image. And we haven't yet realized that actually we unlock one another, we help one another, we need to work together to build and to become what we're actually supposed to be. So I would tell people not to be influenced or divided by uh, sources and, and, and powers and, and, and organizations and movements that prey off that division, that get their money from that division, their political power from that division, and to wake up to, you know, having a a sort of dream and a vision to creating a reality that actually works for us all. And if we put our minds together, then we would be able to do it. It was just great to have you on, Rudy. We've been trying to do this for a while. We've wanted to have you on since the beginning. Just never got around to it. Uh, you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Also on our website, wzionism.com. You can find our new merch store at wzionism.com slash store. Give us a share, a review, a like, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for joining us, Rudy. We hope to have you on again soon. Thank you for having me.